0: Hi, I'm Lou. I'm a dad, husband, professional communicator, and a sugar addict. Soda, sweet treats, breakfast cereal, these are my indulgences of choice. I've tried to wean myself off the stuff, but I keep coming back for more. So I'm trying again to change my diet and my mindset about sugar one step at a time. This is my story. This is Sugar Crash. Welcome to the Sugar Crash Podcast. I'm your host, Lou Corum. Now, we're going to change up the plan just a bit. In the last episode, I said that we would talk about what goes into the sugar crash diet. We're still going to do that, but we're going to do that in a future episode. One of the real changes that I want to make with the Sugar Crash Podcast this time through is I want to get more personal. Now, I've done some of this in the past in ways that, to me, they feel standoffish. I wish I could make you a Cassavetes film that would give you a glimpse into the dysfunction that is my relationship with sugar. I'm middle-aged at this point in my life. What this means is that I'm old and fat, but with good reason. Well, not really. We talked in the last episode about how I got here, how in my 20s I was able to lose a bunch of weight while eating terribly, well, let's get into that a little more. Like so many families, I grew up in a home with food rules. You know the type. In our family, you you had to ask permission to get any kind of food from the pantry or the fridge. Especially off-limits were sugary drinks like soda pop and desserts like cookies. Over time, I developed ritualistic ways of enjoying these desserts. Like, I remember eating the cookie part of chips deluxe cookies in such a way that isolated the M&M-like candies and then saved them until the end. I'd disassemble Kit Kats layer by layer and remove the frosting off the top of Hostess cupcakes. This wasn't just eating. It was a religious experience. If eating desserts were sacramental, then family members mediated our experience with the divine. Family events were filled with desserts. We even had desserts that we liked prepared by certain family members. There was even a family memory that was associated with cheesecake. I would eat, and I would eat a lot at these events. In fact, my eating prowess became the stuff of family legend with stories about me eating huge amounts of cookies, among other junk foods. These behaviors stayed with me into adulthood, but without the structure of the rules behind my eating patterns, things escalated out of control. Yes, in my adult life, I can polish off six cookies in a single sitting. A quarter dozen donuts? No problem. Also, I live in the land of 40-ounce-plus to-go drinks, and it's no problem for me to put away one in a sitting. Rules help me. At first... My upbringing has conditioned me to be successful in a highly regulated space. I can observe rules, and judging from my relative success on the sugar crash diet over the first month, that much hasn't changed. But I don't enjoy rules. By the time I was in high school, I found myself fascinated with American punk rock, and that ethos has stayed with me since then. There's always that rebellious part of me that begins to prod orthodoxy. And and, and in the last episode of Hunger Pangs, you heard me prod my own orthodoxy. This thing with sugar, it's, it's a relationship. And right now, I'm not totally happy with the relationship. And here's why. Well, at least here's some thinking on it. You see, like, I'm not totally happy not having sugar right now. Now, I know that this makes no sense. I mean, especially because, you know, I host this podcast and all, but but it, it's how I feel. I'm, I'm not happy that I haven't had sugar yet this week. Well, it's even funny as that falls on my ears. I mean, that's what it is. I'm not happy that I haven't had sugar yet this week. I haven't had a dessert, and I just feel like I'm white-knuckling it, quite frankly, right now. I mean, I'm just trying not to do it. And that's good to some degree. I mean, I am in the beginning of this diet, and there should be some white knuckling phase to it. But at the same time, I want to have a dessert. And I know that it's okay for me to do it, and yet at the same time, I've got this kind of white knuckle reaction going. And I don't know how to feel about that. Self-sabotage is strong in this one. But dieting isn't about orthodoxy. It's about relationship. That's difficult to remember in the thick of things. I mean, is it really going to cost me my diet if I drink a soda during the week? No. But can we regulate the usage of soda in such a way that maybe I only drink one serving a week? Maybe one serving a month? Well, slow it down, soldier, one step at a time. Let's think about lunch. I work a desk job, nothing too difficult, but nonetheless I greatly enjoy getting away from my desk and out of the office at lunch. Typically on days where I'm stressed, I'd take myself out for lunch. Jimmy John's, Burger King, and McDonald's were my most recent haunts. I'd typically drink a soda at lunch. Empty calories there. A lot of the time I would get a cookie at Jimmy John's too. More empty calories. I'm really lucky though. I live around 15 minutes away from home by foot, so I can take advantage of going home for lunch. Not many people can say this, I know, and yet I still often choose going out for lunch. Why? Well, for one reason, the dishes. If you're a parent, you've undoubtedly run into situations where you've avoided using dishes or, in my case, found too many dirty dishes in your sink. I'm a parent. I'm still irresponsible, though. I know! There's also the other reason. You've got to choose what to eat once you get home. And in the 30 minutes I have to prepare and eat a meal, walking in without any kind of a plan is a real issue. But with a plan, that makes all the difference. So on a weekly basis, I try and get a game plan for every meal. I don't assign dates to the meals, but I do assign times. Like for lunches, I try and have a plan together for around 3 lunches that I can prepare in my typical lunch hour. And I'll try to have at least a couple of these lunches multiple times during the week. There's some flexibility, so this doesn't really feel like rules. But there is enough form there that I'm not overwhelmed by choice. Planning I've learned is key for me to have success while I'm on the sugar crash diet. In our next segment, we're going to talk a little bit about how I go about constructing a meal plan for my family. On this season of the Sugar Crash Podcast, I'm asking one big question. What's healthy? What I mean by that is I'm looking for people's definition of what healthy is to them, in their own words. I'm looking for all sorts of definitions, from the products and habits that we should give up, to the practices and mindsets to which we should give in, from the idiosyncratic to the sublime. I want to hear it all and share it with our listening community. There's a couple of ways to participate. Look for the What's Healthy posts that I make on Instagram and Facebook. The handle is at Podcast, Or send me a message via our new podcast home at anchor.fm slash sugarcrashpodcast. Here's to finding out what's healthy in 2020. (music) Sophistication isn't my modus operandi. I don't think that would surprise anyone. I like the idea of wearing a uniform while I'm at work. I've created my own self-imposed uniform. Black t-shirt, black sweater, if it's needed, jeans and black Converse low-tops. While I love the idea of high and low cultures gliding, I eat a great many more hamburgers and slices of pizza than I do bits of caviar and drink fine wine. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Am I right? The fact remains, though, that I like good food. I think that any pedestrian would say the same thing, that they like good food too. But there are many shades of what good food looks like, from hamburger to salad, from ham and cheese on white to ham and Swiss on a croissant, from chicken liver pate to foie gras, the range of foods when properly prepared that belong to good food is seemingly endless. I don't think that our problem is a good food, bad food problem at all, but it's an easy food, complicated food problem, which is why meal planning is so necessary. All of us will find ourselves reaching for easy food when we're in a hurry. And what's easy for most of us? Fast food, processed food, food that has been so denatured from its original state that it doesn't resemble what it once was. Consider the proverbial Twinkie. Is the cream made with dairy? If so, what witchcraft allows it to remain safe while not refrigerated? You heard me talk about my go-to lunch places in the last segment. You know, Jimmy John's, Burger King, and McDonald's. These are the kinds of places where so many of us have complicated feelings about ourselves and our own eating habits. These are the places where we wax existential about upsizing combo meals and reward ourselves for a job well done with enriched wheat products and palm oil and all that, well, stuff that we tell ourselves about our choices. You say, Lou, aren't two of those choices one and the same, McDonald's and Burger King? Would you say the same about Chevy and Ford? The Yankees and the Mets? Coke and Pepsi? While neither one is my favorite burger, both belong to a set of familiar tastes that are fast, easy, and accessible. If I need a meal, I can drive there and back in less than 30 minutes and get food back to my house. Each accesses a taste memory that is pleasurable, that evokes flavors available from my youth jimmy john's is much the same it's memories from my college days in champagne illinois beyond the taste memories and the accessibility these foods always taste good i know them inside and out and i don't have to think about them in the sense of putting together my choice if i'm having dinner at mcdonald's it's the two cheeseburger meal do i have a hankering for a sandwich number four turkey tom add cucumber and onion at jimmy john's it's simple But listen to those reasons. There's some stuff to reclaim here for making a successful sugar crash diet, don't you think? Accessibility is a huge part of these meal choices. In fact, the 30-minute number is something to especially take note of. Think about it. What if we could make healthy food in 30 minutes or less? Would that make it easy for us to make a more complex choice? Taste memories. That's another thing to pick up on. Maybe a better way to say it is, what do I remember tastes good? To think about complicated foods in terms of taste memories is something that we already do. Think about Thanksgiving, Christmas. What's Thanksgiving without a turkey? Christmas without mom's cookies. We make an effort when we know that behaviors will pay off in a positive way. I think especially when we know there will be layered payoff. Like, say... I really feel like I need some comfort, or, for some reason, I'm craving something salty. In weak moments, I might reach for some McDonald's fries, but if I had something more complicated, but accessible in the same time window, like, say, some avocado toast made with guacamole made with fresh garlic, I might go for the avocado toast. Consistency. This is a third major theme that I'm hearing from me. I want food that I can depend on, that always tastes good. How can I be sure this happens? Well, the first thing, I've got to be on my cooking game. That means I've got to be working out my skills and my recipes on a pretty consistent basis. Now, this is an easy place to bail. Thinking about becoming a good home cook is daunting. I mean, have you watched any cooking shows? Literally any little thing seems to change a dish. And they're right. seasonality, time, temperature, vessel, these are all elements that will return different results for a dish. But at the same time, think of all these things like a palette, channels of expression that tell you about where you are and what you're doing. In this case, each preparation of a dish is a unique sensory experience. Okay, before we commit anything to paper, we understand that our meal plan has to have three elements speed, memory, and consistency. Okay, so this is how we set to work preparing a plan. So when I'm preparing a meal plan for me and my family during the week, I start with planning out the finished dishes. I make categories for breakfast, lunch, snacks, and dinner. For the first three categories, I make things easy on myself by typically planning two to three things for the seven breakfasts, five to six lunches, and five or so snacks that I'm going to eat in a given week. I don't mind doubling up on having the same thing for these kinds of meals. Dinners are fundamentally different, though. I like having a new dinner each day of the week. Typically I'm going to plan around six dinners, knowing that we will eat out for at least one meal during the week. There are a huge stable of dinners that we make, from typically American favorites like chili and BLTs, to stuff off the beaten path like larb and pho. It does help that there's some overlap in terms of the ingredients for different dishes. There are always those ingredients in our home that we're always using. Onions are always a part of the stable. Avocados usually are too. But there are those ingredients that don't have a universality to them where it would be best to use them in other dishes. So planning those other dishes can help. One of those ingredients is sweet peppers, the little yellow, red and orange ones that come in plastic bags at the grocery store. We buy those a lot, and while they are multi-purpose, they don't have a natural integration into every dish that we make. If I have those on hand, they are likely to be used for a chilaquiles-type breakfast dish that we make a lot at home. Of the six dinners that I'm planning, most are going to be easy ones. But there's always going to be those one to two dishes that I'm going to plan that are going to push me in terms of my ability. I'm going to look for recipes that take me into uncharted territory. Like the other week, I made something, I'm not sure of the proper title, but it was uh, like a peanut West African inspired vegan stew for the family. It was fabulous. I'm new in the territory of vegan cooking and so, from the palette of ingredients to the finished dish, everything was new. From there, it's all a matter of putting together your grocery list and then executing the plan. If you've planned well, the choice will be a bit more competitive when it comes to the easy versus the more complicated food. And if you're prepared for making the right choices, hopefully there will be some inevitability to making the more complicated choice. Be sure to let me know about your meal planning practices so that we can revisit this topic more on another episode of the Sugar Crash Podcast. Up next, stats. Join me on the next episode of the Sugar Crash podcast as we examine all the places where sugar hides at the grocery store and we'll try and answer how sugar can be an ingredient and yet still not register on a nutritional label. Success on the Sugar Crash diet, for me, means having a good plan together. We talked in this episode about the importance of having a good plan together, and you can definitely tell that during the week of January 19th, I didn't have a good plan. Now, while I wasn't tracking the exact number of times that I ate food with sugar, I can tell you that I had sugar too many times that week. If you contrast the week of January 26th with the week of January 19th, though, there was a world of difference. I didn't have sugar at all that week, and you heard me process that on hunger pangs. There was something else happening during that time. I felt like I was hitting a plateau in my dieting. Between January 26th and February 2nd, I visited the scale more frequently than I normally would have. I felt like I wasn't going to see the scale move on February 2nd. Luckily I was wrong. I lost 2 pounds during that period. For some reason, that number didn't seem like much consolation. One of the bigger reasons that I'm reining in my eating is that I want to lose weight. I'd like to see my weight in the 250s again soon, and the big weight loss numbers that I had seen in the beginning of the diet have slowed. But for some reason, I'm feeling better about my weigh-in on February 9th, 261.0 pounds. That's down 2.6 pounds from the previous week. For whatever reason, I feel better about that number than the 2 pounds that I had lost the week before but it's important to keep this in perspective. If I can work on losing an average of one pound per week this year, I would have a 50 pound plus weight loss in 2020. At this point, I'm on pace to make a 20 pound weight loss by February 16th. That's not bad. If I hit it, I will be well on my way to hitting 50. My blood pressure is still trending on the high side, 131 over 81. I'd like to see that systolic number closer to 120, but the diastolic number being at 81 is encouraging. My pulse was 66. In the upcoming weeks, I'm going to tell you more about some other numbers that I'm hoping to capture. But for now, I'm going to tell you about one that I'm currently calling sugar events. Okay, so I'm not totally sugar-free in every way, but I'm trying to eliminate sugar in my diet as much as possible. Without making stats a confessional, I want to communicate to you about if I go off the Sugar Crash diet with sugar. This past week I went off the diet four times. Two times with sodas and twice with sugary treats. I'm not proud about going off my diet that many times. Part of my plan going forward is to indulge in a single dessert each week with my kids. That was one of those times. One of the times I had a soda with fast food just because. I can do better than that. Another time, my wife brought me two of Christina Lane's delicious espresso chocolate chip cookies from a book signing of her latest book, Dinner Just for Two. You don't say no to a dessert by the creator of Dessert for Two, people! But one time in particular, I'm not proud to say, I ate a meal with a soda out of depression. Look, these kinds of events are going to happen. Depressive episodes are going to happen. Life is going to happen. But I have to find a productive way of channeling feelings in these low moments so that I don't get sidetracked, so that I don't go into some kind of free fall. I can do this. The Sugar Crash Podcast is a production of me, Luke Corum, recorded and edited in Denton, Texas. You can download episodes of The Sugar Crash Podcast at anchor.fm slash podcast or at sugarcrash.net. Be sure to subscribe to the Sugar Crash Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to watch the feed for updates in between episodes called Hunger Pangs. If you have an idea for a segment that you'd like to see me cover, be sure to email me at lou at sugarcrash.net.